we had been going through the Gospel of John, and I promise we will return to it uh, after Easter. <laughs> uh, so this week we've been, we've been kind of pausing because some of the issues with the woman at the uh, well, not just all her issues, but some things we talked about was were her marrying five different husbands and the one she was with wasn't with her husband. So I want to talk a little bit more about marriage and sexuality, just kind of take a break on that and how it pertains to her. And so this week we're going to talk about uh, even more in-depthly about marriage as covenant and what that means. Um, and, and next week we're going to talk about that oath sign and that covenant as well. Uh, and then we'll get to Palm Sunday and Easter and then we'll get back to the woman of well. Uh, and go through the Gospel of John. As, but just want to know where we're at, that this is where we're talking about marriage. And this, this sermon is not just for married people. I hope you understand that, the, that marriage is the metaphor in which God uses to describe his relationship with all people, which we talked about uh, several weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, about this in Ezekiel, this, this relationship that God has, this unconditional love that he has to his bride, we people. So even if you're a single today, this actually uh, deeply applies to you. What promises do you make? What promises do you make? Right? A promise right, is a, a verbal commitment by one person to another, agreeing to do or not to do something in the future. So what promises do you make? I mean, we make promises all the time. All the time. Sometimes serious problems, uh, serious promises, sometimes very casual and sometimes very flippant promises. Sometimes we make promises we don't even realize we make a promise. We promise internal goals, right? We promise to ourselves, right? We make some dietary, inter- I do this all the time. I am, I'm going to be strict in my eating today. I just don't remember that later on in the day, that promise I made to myself, right? But we make these internal goals, we make spiritual discipline goals to ourselves, right? We have all these kind of internal promises that we make. There's, we make foxhole promises, right? These foxhole promises when you're in despair or you're in deep trouble or pain and you plead out and you make a deal with God. You take this away. You remove my circumstances. I will promise to do so forth and such, right? We make these kind of promises. We make transactional promises, these kind of quid pro quo. Yes, I will send it and I will take care of it if you do this. We promise these kind of transactional promises promises. We make spiritual promises to each other or to e- with each other. We just made some promises right now, right? Dora and Lisa and Liz made some promises. They made some vows, right? I believe, I follow, I will pray. We make parental promises, things you will and won't do for your kids. These are sometimes one of the more subtle promises sometimes we make with our kids. They ask us something and you're doing something else and you say, yeah, I'll do that. We'll do that later. I promise I do that later, right? So sometimes it's so casual, you don't even remember that they come out of your mouth. But I guarantee who doesn't remember them? Your kids. Right? I, I try. I try not to make promises I won't keep with my kids. And I try, when, no, like very potential, like when I make a promise, that I'm going to do this. And I'm going to fight. It might not be right in that moment, but I will find a time to fulfill that promise. We make relational promises, right? We make promises with our spouse, those are our wedding vows. We make promises with our friends, uh, you know, social clubs, how we interact, commitment, responsibilities, all kinds of promises we make. In our culture, though, even though I just laid out all the ways that we make promises, we don't take promises very seriously. We don't think much of them. 
Our promises are flimsy or flippant, casual, conditional, or sometimes we think inconsequential. It doesn't matter what promises make because I can always back out of the promises. We don't give promises much thought and we don't give them much credence, partly because we live in the culmination of a postmodern world. This is the right around the world we live in is the fruit of the postmodern thought, where truth, facts, and even promises are fluid and interpretive. Now you say, yeah, that's right, that's the world we, but here's what I'm saying. The church is this way. The church is, is the fruit of a postmodern world. This is, not a, this is not a liberal and conservative political thought. This is not a liberal or conservative uh, theological thought. This is just the world that we all live in. And this is the way we act. We take truth and facts and promises as fluid and interpretive. This view, this understanding of the world, this operation of the world is in opposition to the way God operates and the way he designed his creation. Let's pause for a second. The verse we read last week, 2 Peter 1, 3-4. His, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So by his own power, he's given us everything that we need for uh, godliness and life through the knowledge of him which he's called to his glory. And well, how is this? By, this is by this means which he's granted us through his precious and very great promises. This is foundational to who he's got. God's divine power in his will is based on his promises that he makes to his people. That I'm going to give you everything necessary for life and godliness to be in my character. God promises that. All through scripture is God promising and God fulfilling his promises. This is who God is. And this is how he designs his world. It goes on, right? So that, because he makes these promises, so that through them, through them, the promises that you might partakers of the divine nature have an escape from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Isn't that a different way of thinking of promises? That through God's promises, you will partake in his divine nature. God is fundamentally a promise maker, and a promise keeper. In the 90s, there's this big thing about for men, right? The promise keepers, right? But before you make, you keep your promises, you gotta make promises. God is a promise maker, and he declares those promises, and then he keeps these promises. He reveals who he is, what he's going to do, and then he does it. 2 Corinthians 1, 18 through 20. This is this foundational to understanding of, of who Jesus is. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him, in Jesus, it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Now, God makes a lot of promises. All the promises 
find their yes in the person and the work and the character of Jesus, who is God. Our security, our comfort, our hope is in the promises made and the promises kept. Which leads us to marriage. Right? God is one of the foundational things as he talks about his marriage as his relationship with his people. And so I want to talk about our marriages today. Marriage, by its design and purpose, is a covenant. Now, this is a really big word, covenant. We don't usually use it in our culture today. But if you want to understand what Presbyterians are, what Reformed theology people is, is we emphasize covenant because we understand this is how Scripture works. This is how, who God is. And covenant is a fancy word for promise. It's a fancy word for promise. And actually, the word when we get old in the New Testament, the testament is a fancy word for covenant, which is a fancy word for promise. And really, it's just about God making promises and fulfilling those promises. Marriage, by its design and purpose, is about promise making and promise keeping. Marriage, by its design, is making promises and spending a lifetime fulfilling and keeping those promises. That's what a marriage is. And we, when we learned a couple weeks ago through Ezekiel, that's what God does. He makes promises and spends our lifetime fulfilling those promises, despite us not fulfilling them. Despite us turning our backs on him, he fulfills his promises. Your wedding day, whether you've already had it, or whether it's a day in the future, is a day that you make significant and profound promises. It is a huge day and a celebration, but it is about the promises you make that day. And your marriage, your wedding is about your promises. Your marriage is about fulfilling the promises day in and day out that you make on your wedding day. That's why marriage is a covenant. And don't, don't, this, don't mistake the promises that you make to be married, like to, to be engaged. Like, I'm, I love you, and I'm going to marry you. Don't mistake those promises that you're going to meet at the altar as the same as the promises you make at the altar. They are different. Those promises you make on the wedding day are significant and profound and are meant to reflect the promises God makes to you. And the rest of your days is about fulfilling those promises. And here's a little key. Here's a little tip for you. I guarantee you will fail at fulfilling those promises. Because we're broken people. What, that was what uh, Tamara said. Right, right thing, like, how hard it must be for me to pastor broken people. right? But the, the barrier isn't you when I'm pastoring. The barrier is, is my brokenness. That's what makes pastoring hard is not that I have to minister to broken people. It's that I ha- I'm a broken person. That's the barrier for me. That's the struggle. But even when you fail them, you can always get back and start fulfilling them again. That's, that's grace and that's forgiveness and that's repentance. Making covenants, making promises is an elective relationship obligation under divine sanction. And so this is really, you know, a contract. We, we get contracts, we sign them. They're, they're two-way kind of thing. But covenant, ancient Eastern understanding of covenant, it was all over ancient Eastern. Covenants were made all the time. And the covenants are three-way contracts 
between you and another party, and uh, whatever God that you decided was the overseer of those contracts, of those covenants, those, those promises you made. So it could be very serious things or very kind of casual things, but you made covenant, and you almost always the penalty for breaking the covenant was death by either party. And oftentimes, this is what it was uh, overseeing countries, countries that would conquer smaller countries, right? They would conquer them, and they would make covenants because they thought, okay, you can still kind of operate the kind of way you were. You just got to make taxes or obligations to understand that there's some things that we want you to do the way we want you to do them. And so they made a covenant. One was, one was more powerful and one was lesser, and so they made a covenant with each other. And if anyone broke those covenants, wiping the other country out, was necessary. Covenants all the time. And God was always the overseer because sometimes God had to be overseer because sometimes you would break that covenant in your heart and not an outward action. But God would know or the God would know and he would take the penalty. Foundational. Covenants made all the time. And so marriage in scripture is clearly defined as covenant. As a type of covenant. Malachi 2.14, it says it very explicitly. But you say, why does he not... But why does he not? Because the Lord was witness. He was the overseer between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion, hold on to that word as well too, and your wife by covenant. Covenant, you made a covenant with your wife and God was the witness and the overseer. God is the witness and overseer of all the covenants. And we heard that in Ezekiel as well too. Marriage is about fulfilling the unconditional promises, the unconditional vows on your wedding day. Now, when I do a wedding, I don't let couples write their own vows. I mean, they can say something later on, but I, like these are the vows you've got to make, right? And they're unconditional, right? What are, the, what are those, those vows? Right? And, and it's till death you part. It's not until I'm tired of you. It's not until you make, you know, I'm, I'm not happy with you anymore, Right? In sickness and in health, in wealth and prosperity, whatever, in, 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 in poverty, all those things. I promise to do these things until death do us part. God's marriage to his people is about his faithfulness to his promises. And, and just another way you can describe this is, is um, fulfilling promises is, is love. Love. A good description of love is living out your promises, your word. That kind of love provides stability. That kind of love brings confidence to people. That kind of love brings assurance. If you have children, right, if you are a promise keeper, they're going to feel secure that they know what you say and what you do is what you mean. Now, there's sometimes when you make a promise, like you need to back out of that promise because it was a bad promise. Particularly the promise of like a discipline, like you, I do this, right? You, you, you escalate into like your promise, I'm going to take away everything forever. You're banned, right? Or you're, you're stuck in this house forever. And then you realize that is a really crazy consequence and promise in that moment, right? So you got to back out. We've learned, right? Like don't make any threats or don't make, don't to tell them what the consequence will be and say, we're going to discuss this because until we get a better mindset of what the consequence will be. We've also learned, this is a little side parenting trick, is that we often let our kids decide their consequence. Like, what do you think you should do? They're almost always more harsher than we are. <laughs> so this is, it's a beautiful thing. Like, okay, 
that's what you want. <laughs> that's what we'll give you. But it's, love is living out your promises, providing stability for people. And another way you can say that is faithfulness. Faithfulness is living out, fulfilling your promises or promise keeping. Do you see how those two are combined together? Love and faithfulness and promise keeping and promise fulfilling? Let's get to our verse today. I want you to understand that marriage is a covenant, which is marriage is about promise making and promise keeping. In Genesis 2, 18 to 25, it doesn't explicitly say right here in Genesis 2 that marriage is a covenant, but there's allusions to that it is a covenant here, and we know later in Scripture that it says marriage is a covenant. But the first marriage God designs as a covenant. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see that, that what he would call them. And whatever the man called every little creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the beasts of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed it up in his place with, with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God has taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. And she should be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. God creates marriage so that Adam would not be alone. Now, when we hear that word alone, we immediately put it in our context, and our understanding of that, I don't know about you, but when I think alone, I immediately think of psychological issues, right? Loneliness and despair, but that's not what the word here is suggesting. It is not a, a psychological impairment that Adam is depressed, and he has no friends. It's just like, this is not Complete. It really means that Adam is exclusively by himself. That's what it's trying to say. It's just really emphasizing that he is just there and there is no other human. There, that he's, in fact, incomplete and that there's only one male person. So God makes a female person and then creates a marriage right there. And marriage by its definition, because it's meant to cure the oneness or, or the aloneness, marriage is a covenant of companionship. A covenant of companionship. And by definition, we know, all of us, whether we're married or single, are not meant to be alone. That we are meant to be in relationship. And so we do not have to have be in marriage not to be alone. Right? This is one of the purposes of the body of Christ comes and fulfilled, that we are not alone, that we are in a marriage together with God. Marriage is a covenant of companionship, or another way we could say it's a covenant of one flesh. Covenant of one flesh. So in this covenant of companionship, I really want to break this down. What does it mean to be someone's companion or partner? I'm not going to talk about egalitarian or complementarian. If you don't want those words, just forget them. I, I do want to say I am complementarian in marriage. But I want to define what it means to be in a covenant of companionship. What does it mean to be someone's companion and what it means to be someone's partner? And then you'll begin to understand, I think, really what it means to be in a complementarian relationship. 
In verse 18, God says he'll make a helper fit for Adam. And helper here means partner, protector, defender, ally, good friend, assistance. Those are all words that use this word for helper in Scripture. Now, that's interesting. Did you hear some of those ways I defined helper? I think if we, if we use our defined, our gender roles by the culture that we live in, or that we want to live in, or what we assign, we got to be careful about our gender culture roles. Because if we use our gender culture roles, we would say protector and defender and ally and partner. Those are all male characteristics. Those are all male roles, right? But here it is described for the woman. I just think we ought to be careful how we culturally define male and female and how Scripture defines them. And you're going to find Scripture defines them a little bit differently than we do. But the point is the woman is described as created to be the helper. In Genesis 2.20, Eve is described as a suitable helper to Adam. And helper, right, does not mean slave. It does not mean servant. It does not mean less than. Right? It means protector, defender, partner, ally, good friend, and assistant. And this term elsewhere is almost exclusively used for God and the way he interacts with humans. That God is their helper. Exodus 18.4, and the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help. God is helper. Psalm 121, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, is God less than us? Is God slave to us? No. Certainly not. God has something that we don't, and he has to provide it for us. He comes by. He protects. He defends. He's our ally. He's our good friend. He's our partner. In Proverbs 31, this is when we often quote. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it's talking about an excellent wife, an excellent wife who can find she is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her. There's that word trust, right? That security in that. And we will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Now, if you read the rest of that proverb, the rest of the proverb goes on to say how that wife provides for her husband provides. She is a provider for her husband. It's not that the husband is a provider for her wife. It goes both ways. She provides. One important understanding that this wife is helper and God is helper, wife does not equal God. Right? I just want to make sure you understand that. Right? Wife does not equal God. It's all a reflection, a metaphor of that. So number two, right, so God is helper, right? There's a, there is a partnership, a companionship between husband and wife. Number two, some people talk about the inequality of naming, right? So the man named the woman. But here, naming is not inherently denigrating. There's an equality to it. Hagar actually names God, right? One of uh, uh, Abraham's concubine, Hagar, names God in Genesis 16, 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. That's just another, giving him another name. You, you, you are a seeing God. That is not denigrating. That is not lowering God in standing. It's identifying with God. It's relating. It's, it's, we are, we are in the, you are my helper. You are my provider in this moment. So naming is not inherently dangering. It does not give power to one over the other. 
Number three, naming is typically in covenant-making context. Since covenants, by definition, redefine relationships and their partners. It changes everything, covenants. So it doesn't make one superior over the other. It actually just redefines who they are. Adam names Eve, right? And there's that covenant ratifying oath in this renaming that the man said, this is the last of my bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and she should be called woman because she is taken out of man. There's right there's that identifying and say, we are in this together, that you are the same flesh as me, which is a really important concept for the next point. That you are the same flesh, you're a bone of my bones. That she wasn't formed out of something else, but she was formed out of man. And there is a oneness connected to them. And so Adam, Eve was created out of the river man. And so this, this is not saying, well, therefore the man was the fullness and the woman was less, that she's only made out of the rib. No, it's, it's the connection of one flesh. There is a co-equality with Adam in their body. There's the profound unity of marriage, that she wasn't just made out of the dust or a plant, that she was made out of the man because they are meant to be one flesh. Out of one flesh they come, and out of one flesh they are meant to be. There is a covenant of commitment, of promises here. Marriage is a covenant of companionship. It's a reflection of the covenant of marriage and companionship that God has with his people, right? We've talked about this before. God creates marriage as a pointer to his eternal marriage. The whole reason that he creates this marriage in the very beginning is to point out, it's like, I want to really understand, you understand how much I love you. How much I love you, my people. And so we are created as people to be in his character and his dignity and the godliness, right? That first, that second Peter thing, that godliness, that it, we were supposed to imitate God in his character, not in all his abilities. In Matthew 5, 48 says, you therefore must be perfect, complete, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then Ephesians 5, 1, the first verse of Ephesians 1, 5, 1 says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved Children. Now, what does the rest of Ephesians say? Talks about husband and wife later on, doesn't it? But the first thing it says is that all of you be imitators of God, because that's what we're called to be in our marriages and in our life and everywhere we go. This is God will create be in the character of who He is. And and the sixth thing, this idea of leave and cleave, this is covenant language, not just in marriages, but in all covenants, that you leave something and you're going to cleave something else, that you're going to, you were something and now you're something else. And here in Genesis 2.24, this is, you are, you were an old thing, you were, you were just lonely, alone, man, and now you are man and woman, one flesh, a new person Together, not two individuals, but two individuals, now one person, united in one flesh. Something old and now new, which is a great definition of who we are in Christ. We were an old creation, and now that we've been united in Christ, we are a new creation. And the last thing, and they will become one flesh. This idea of one flesh parallels, it's, I'm not saying it's equal to this word, I'm saying it parallels our concept of understanding of the word everybody. Right, when we use the word everybody, we don't refer to everyone's body. I'm not saying everybody's body, 
right? That's what I'm saying, that every person, when I use the word everybody, and so when we use the word, it's the same word when we use, in Hebrew when we use the word one flesh. We're not talking about everybody's body. We're talking about everybody. When I talk about, when we say one flesh, I'm talking about Adam and Eve as one person. Genesis 6, 17. For behold, I bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, not everyone's body's body, but all people, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Becoming one flesh means becoming one person. Really significant. And we begin to understand this as we're married, right? So this, when, when Jesus says, what does this mean to be one purpose? When, when he's quoted in Matthew, as he talking about male and female, they're talking about divorces. So they're no longer two, but one flesh in verse 6. What therefore God has joined together, what God has created, because that's what marriage is, God creates. We don't create, God creates. Let man not separate. And so those that have experienced divorce as either children of divorce or have gone through divorce, this is not a sermon about divorce. And listen, there's grace and there's forgiveness and there's healing because I told you we all break promises. This is why God comes into the world. But the point is we all know divorce is devastating because we all know sin is devastating. And part of the devastation of divorce is that it actually is separating and killing a person. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, there's, a whole, we'll talk about, there's another sermon another day about divorce, why God allows that divorce. But the simple answer is because God knows we're sinful people. So he sets the standard, and then he begins with all these case laws. Okay, this is what you have to do because you are broken people, and I know this is going to happen to you. Ephesians 5, 28, 31, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. One flesh. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and chairs it just as Christ does the church. 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 20, that's like, begin to understand this passage. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So there's that parallel, right? This bodies and the members of Christ in this marriage of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? This is that illustration should I, of this idolatry and adultery. Should I take the people that are, are loving God and in a relationship and married to him, shall I then unite them to something that is not God? That doesn't make sense. He's, he's combining these kind of terms of idolatry and, and I, adultery as well. And it goes on to say, never or do you not know that he, that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. This is really important. There's three terms here. One body with her. So it's not one flesh, it's one body with her. For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. You see, there's one body, one flesh, one spirit. And then, of course, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? So it's a little bit confusing here, but he's saying, look at What's devastating about sexual immorality is it doesn't just harm other people. Actually, you're harming yourself. You go back to the Ephesians 5 passage. Why would you harm your other spouse, because it's your one body. Why would you do that? Why would you, actually, why would you harm the Lord in that sense? Because you're united in him. 
and that we're united in one body. One body equals a sexual relationship with a prostitute, which is a close union. We understand why that's a close union. It's physically a close union. The one flesh, the covenant of marriage, is a closer union. And then, of course, the ultimate goal right, is one spirit. United in Christ. United in Christ. All these are meant to be pointers to that one spirit. The one body, the one flesh, to the one spirit. So why is one body not equal to the one flesh? Why is the sexual union not equal to one flesh? That's next week's sermon. That's next week's sermon. They're connected, but it's not equal to. We'll dig deeper, right? Because I'll just give you a little hint. Sexual relationship, one body, is the marriage covenant ratifying oath renewing sign. It's not the promise. It's the remembrance of the promise. That's what sex is. Change your view of sex forever. So sexual relationship is dying by God as expression of the one flesh union. It's a subset of that one body. Sexual expression, relationship is the expression of the faithfulness of the promises made. We'll talk about more of that one week, next week. So in just a, a, a little pointer to that, a sexual relationship, one body, is designed only for the marriage covenant, one flesh. Just as faithfulness is designed for relationship with the one God, one spirit. So sex is designed and for the marriage covenant as a pointer to reminder of those promises. And faithfulness is a reminder of that one spirit that we are in with Christ. God's revealed goal for the covenant of companionship for a husband and wife is to come one flesh in all areas of their relationship. Intellectually, emotionally, physically, every area that they become one flesh, united together. The covenant of companionship, marriage, is designed to fill the need of aloneness, not in psychological terms, but incompleteness and making you whole. Now, you say, well, I'm a single person. I'm not complete or whole. True, but you don't need a man and woman to make you whole. You need Christ because marriage between a man and a woman is designed to point to the real marriage that lasts forever. Do everyone understand that? Do not come away from like, I need a husband and wife. You do not. You need Christ. A husband and wife is designed, a marriage is designed to point to that need. Our marriages are designed to point to the deep and passionate love that God has for his people. Our temporary marriages, our covenant of commandments, are to point to his eternal marriage to us. Our temporary covenants point to his eternal covenant. This covenant marriage is a metaphor that God completes his people, that God completes his. This, this covenant of companionship that he has for us, this understanding of the philosopher of Paspel, right? He says that all of us have this God-shaped hole, and marriage is a metaphor to show that God actually fills that hole for all people. It's important to understand, though, this is where it breaks down this metaphor a little bit. 
God doesn't need us. There is not a hole, God-shaped hole in God because God is God. There is no incompleteness in God. In fact, that's one of the beauties of the Trinity that God reveals himself. Before there's all anything, there is the triune God eternally coexisting. That there's eternal uh, love, companionship, relationship in this. The Father and the Son and the Spirit always loving each other in this way. And completely complete. The triune God doesn't need us and we don't complete him. We are, which just changes the metaphor here that God does, but he does in scripture. We are his incomplete, broken children that we need him to complete us. And he completes us by uniting us with him in marriage. So if our covenantal marriages point to his covenantal mentors of people, and if our promises point to his promises to his people, and if our faithfulness point to his faithfulness, and if our promise keeping, our faithfulness does not earn us salvation, it does not justify us, our works don't justify us. All of this then, all of this, all of this marriages, all the things that we have is actually designed to be a tool for evangelism. It's a tool for evangelism, the point to God. I hope that redefines what your marriage is. Your marriage isn't essentially about making each other happy or pleasing each other or for your own joy. I mean, it, there should be some of that in there, right? It shouldn't be miserable because then it's not pointing to God. But your marriage is essentially a God-given tool to show how he loves his people, how he loves the world. And all that promise-keeping and all that promise-making is to be a shadow metaphor of the reality of what he does for his people. And I know that you and I will fail, but that just highlights where he does not fail to everyone else. That's the purpose of your marriage, is to point people to Christ. Where our yes means yes and our no means no, there's stability and honesty in our relationships, and that's to under, begin to understand who God is and how he operates in the world. And this is designed for a world where love doesn't fluctuate on your emotions. That brings a new, a, a, a new imagined world to people. Because uh, I told you at the very beginning, that this is not how the world operates. And so in many ways, our marriages and the way we operate need to imagine a world in which God has actually created and the purpose of this world. We need to, we need to enliven the imaginations of people by our faithfulness, by our love, by our promises that we keep. Imagine a world where being loved doesn't depend on your imperfect actions. This is a world we need to live out and help the oppressed people in this world. And all people are oppressed. And we need to help people reimagine, re-understand who God is and his design and purpose for this world and for them. And we can do that in our marriages as well. This is, what the, this is what the world needs, and it's what the woman at the well needed. And this is why Jesus goes right after it. Five husbands, and currently the, more, the man she is, that she is, that she doesn't, is not her husband. He knows that she is not imagining the world in which he actually created. And she doesn't understand that. And so Jesus has to reimagine, recorrect this for her. 
And he begins to show her a love that is not dependent upon her faithfulness, but upon his faithfulness to hers. We live in a world of broken promises. There is not stable footing in this world where people can't trust other people and they can't trust their love and they can't trust their word. They can't trust what people say and they can't trust people what they will do, what they say. And so the very beginning I asked you, what promises do you make? It correlates also what promises do you keep? Because those two things communicate a lot to the world. Don't make flippant promises. Make serious, profound promises in your marriages and in your life and keep those promises. All that will communicate a reality to the rest of the world that illuminates their imagination out of the darkness of their solitude and their aloneness. Our God is a promise maker and he is a promise keeper. And in that, that is where the people will find their joy and their security in his unconditional love. Our marriages are covenants meant to be pointers to his promises and his fulfilled promises. Our marriages are are about keeping promises we make on our wedding day to create security and comfort to the ones we love, to allow them to grow and trust and to depend on our love and likewise to point others to how God loves them. Whether you are in a temporal marriage, which means until death do you part, or whether you're you're not and you're in a marriage with Christ, let your life, let your relationships all point to the promise-making, promise-keeping love of God. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Father, I am thankful that this world was not designed by me and my promises and my ability to keep those promises or likewise anyone else. But I am glad that you are a promise maker, that you love us so deeply and so intimately that you're willing to enter into the brokenness of this world and even our hatred and our despising of you and our turning our backs on you. And you are able to, in that love of yours, to fulfill your promises that you make to us and to create something that was dead and make something new in us. Lord, help us day in and day out because because of your great and precious promises that give us all things the ability to be in godliness and to be in for all things of life. Help us to live those things out to point others to you, the promise maker and the promise keeper. Help us point us to your love. We give you thanks, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.